folks, Dr. Travis McMacken here. Welcome or welcome back, as the case may be. Thank you for choosing to spend a bit of your day with me. I hope that I can at least help you to think some interesting thoughts. I'll be back with you in a moment after the music ends. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Thanks for coming out. I don't know what the deal was. There was nobody here but my family until like five minutes before 9.30. <laughs> so Dave and I were joking if we missed a time change or something, but I'm glad that wasn't the case. Um, so we're going to be spending the next few weeks together, two weeks after this week, I believe, and then I have to go camping with the Boy Scouts. So um, that's a different kind of spiritual experience for me, spiritual formation in patience <laughs> and self-control and also the great outdoors which I love but uh, between now and then we're going to be thinking together about the lectionary passages for each of the Sundays that we'll be meeting so what I have printed out for you uh, are the passages for today so I just wanted you to have them all in one place I hope it's uh, big enough to be readable I was trying to fit things onto one page. I don't think I'm going to be able to do that the rest of the weeks, but it worked out this week. All right. I want to start with you know a little bit of a historical aside, uh, which you all know I, I like to do, um, because I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the liturgical calendar and the lectionary, which might be an odd thing to say when I'm going to start a little bit of a series talking about the lectionary, so I figured I'd get this out of the way, but uh, it's one of those things this where... Disclaimer. This, yeah, this is the disclaimer. <laughs> but it's one of those things where I find myself kind of gravitating to different ends of the spectrum depending on who I'm around. <laughs> so back when I was more in evangelical circles, you know, that's where I grew up and came out of, I was really interested in the church year. I was really interested in the liturgical year, the liturgical seasons, the lectionary, all of these things were very strange and um, interesting to me in that context because, you know, evangelicals, I don't know what your all experience has been, but they just kind of freewheel it, right? They'll, they'll have a service for Christmas, they'll have a service for Easter, maybe Good Friday if you're lucky, uh, but otherwise they're not observing the church year. And so in that kind of very unstructured environment, I gravitated toward more structure. Now I find myself <laughs> in a context that follows the liturgical calendar, uh, that uses the lectionary, and I, I start moving back the other direction, <laughs> and I think it's just because I'm contrary, as you all know, but um, it also has to do with the origins of our tradition, the Reformed tradition, and that's kind of the historical aside I wanted to start with. Um, does anybody, have, have I talked to you all about Ulrich Zwingli before? I don't know how much time I've spent on him, but he was really the first of the important thinkers in our Reformed tradition. So Presbyterianism is part of this larger Reformed tradition, and we come specifically through the English and Scottish versions, through John Knox, which I've talked with you about uh, before. But Zwingli in Zurich in the 1520s was really one of the first people who took this path that we recognize now as the Reformed tradition. And one of the big things that he did to get started was have a bunch of arguments with people about Lent, right? And of course, we're in the season of Lent now. So actually in the 1520s, there were a series of 
three or four disputations between Zwingli and his friends, who were all pastors there in Zurich, and some of the monks and representatives of the bishop and things, and they were arguing about whether or not they had to observe Lent, whether or not they had to observe the liturgical calendar. And key among that was whether or not you had to keep the dietary restrictions that were in place in Lent. So um, I think we're all aware that Catholics do lots of fish frying during Lent, um, but you couldn't have uh, meat, uh, beef, uh, pork, fowl. Those things were off limits. You could have fish because it's not a land animal. Uh, it's not meat in the same way as the, the way that the medieval and early modern mind thought about it. Uh, but these guys, uh, Zwingli and his friends, they would have these big parties where they'd just all eat a bunch of sausage during Lent <laughs> as a way of you know, showing their disagreement and their Christian freedom that they did not have to follow these practices. Now, you know, we're in a little bit of a different situation today. Nobody is forcing us to follow the liturgical calendar. Nobody is forcing us not to eat sausage during Lent if we want or whatever else. So in our context, we can embrace these practices freely and take them for the value that we find in them, which can be you know, very meaningful. Um, but at that time, it was, you have to do this. And they're like, oh, no, we don't. And so maybe uh, that contrariness is just part of what I, <laughs> I have built into my makeup at this point as well. But another key piece of what Zwingli was up to had to do specifically with the lectionary. So if you're looking at the sheet, you'll notice that in the lectionary, uh, every week, there is a reading from the Old Testament, or as uh, one of my teachers like to call it, the Older Testament, because they're both old at this point. Uh, but the Old Testament, and then you have something from, uh, you have a psalm, then you have a reading from, it, it just says second reading here, but it's generally an epistle reading. So from one of the letters from the New Testament. And then you have a gospel reading. And so that's kind of the basic set. And each of those will sometimes, you know, get into series. So like you might have, well, we have this year, in year C for Lent, the gospel that we're using is Luke. Other years use other gospels. Um, a lot of times you'll work through a, an epistle book. Um, a lot of times you'll work through a particular story or section in the Old Testament reading. But this is the revised common lectionary that we use today. Much older versions of it were not quite so well organized, so well centralized. And it really all sprang from the fact that if you go far enough back, uh, not every Christian group, not every Christian community, not every church had all the books. So you'd have uh, some communities that might have the Gospel of Mark and a couple of Paul's letters, and they, they would all have the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Jewish scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, which also contained all of that Apocrypha stuff. Judith, Tobit, Ecclesiasticus, all of those fun books as well. So they'd have that, but then of the quote-unquote newer writings, they'd have different pieces. And so slowly, as everything got spread around more and more copies were made, they wanted to make sure that they were providing a way for people to hear all of the richness that the different books had to offer. Because remember, people weren't reading it. Not only were there not copies, but people couldn't read anyway, right? So everything they were getting was coming through the ear. And so by providing a set of readings that would move you through time and then also fold back on itself and repeat, 
you're providing a way for people to become familiar with scripture in the oral and aural forms, right? So that was the real value of the lectionary. Now, of course, by the time you get to Zwingli, all of this is happening in Latin. And nobody speaks Latin anymore <laughs> except the church people, right? So that was a problem. And so Zwingli, one of the big things he did other than eating lots of sausage is he broke from the uh, lectionary and moved back to what's called a Lectio Continua model. Lectio Continua means continuous reading. So basically what he did is he started at the beginning of the New Testament at Matthew and spent like 10 years talking about Matthew in his sermons and just expositing Matthew for the community there and working his way through. So at the heart of our Reformed tradition is this idea that um, you know, we can do lots of different things, but digging deeply into a particular set of texts in the New Testament especially and working through carefully for a long period of time is just one of the things built into the DNA of our tradition. And the lectionary gets in the way of that, which is why I get contrary feelings about it, right? Now, uh, in, in our congregation, we have a mix, which is nice, right? So we will go into our service today and we will see some of these lectionary passages, but we are also going to see the gospel reading from the Sermon on the Mount because Ronnie has taken the gospel lectionaries out and he's put in the Sermon on the Mount and he's going to work us through the Sermon on the Mount for the season of Lent. So we've got a nice hybrid going uh, that Ronnie does from time to time and I always really appreciate that. But I wanted to give that kind of a background to what we're doing. Indicated that we are in year C. So mm -hmm. clarify for me because I have forgotten. Is it, are there only three? Years there are only three. Okay. Yep. So a, B, and C. A, B, and C. Yep. And um, there are a number of texts that are the same. And obviously, you don't have enough Psalms to go around that many times, especially if you're looking at the day by day lectionary, not just the Sunday lectionary. Um, so there are things that will repeat more frequently than every three years. And of course, we've got Gospels multiple different versions of the same story. Those will often repeat at about the same time of year. But yeah, we've got three different sets that we work our way through and then we cycle back to year A and do it all over again. Come, come again? So there was a bunch of folks that got together in the late 90s and ate sausage. I like to think so. And uh, they put together the Revised Common Lectionary. So it's actually published. It was a, a joint effort by a large ecumenical group of churches. And then all of those churches kind of used that. And they kind of did a refresh of it in about 2012, I want to say, 2011. But it's, it was that effort that led to the one that we use now. Is the reason they can eat fish because they aren't land animals? Is that the basis of that? I've never heard that before. Yep. Yeah, the it, fish. Where I've been, but I've never heard that. Fish in the ancient and medieval imagination was not meat in the same way. So fish were fair game. What about these fish you can go on land? <laughs> fish you can go on land? I don't know anything about fish that can go on land. Oh, there are fish you can cross land. Oh yeah. Yeah, they just kind of flop their way across. Yeah. There's some crawlers. Did, did they have those in Europe? <laughs> I think they might be a loophole. 
<laughs> you know, they're air breathing fish. Yeah. So um, we've got these passages before us today. Um, I thought we'd start with the Deuteronomy passage. I have, if you can see, I have just like green lines and underlines and things on my page of stuff that jumped out to me when looking at this, but uh, we can talk about anything that jumps out at y'all as well that you feel like, like talking about. So please don't hesitate to um, jump in or stop me or say, no, that's too boring. Let's talk about this other thing instead. Uh, we can definitely go with the flow on that kind of stuff. But since we're talking about, you know, the season of Lent, and um, we had a, we've had this conversation with our kids a couple of times, but it happened in the car recently, we are talking about Lent, and um, we got on the subject of giving things up for Lent, and one of the kids invariably says, well, what are you giving up for Lent? <laughs> and I said, I'm a Protestant, I give up Lent for Lent. <laughs> because I'm contrary, but <laughs> I like this reading from Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy has to be one of the best books in, in the Old Testament. Um, I really enjoy it. It should be the NRSV. I pulled this, I actually, the PCUSA website is where I got these, and they, will, they have the lectionary for every Sunday. I think they even have the daily up there that you can look up and pull it down, but I'm pretty sure this is NRSV. It's talking about you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from that land. And then it goes through telling you kind of what to do. But jump down to the, to the second to last uh, line in that second, right? So you, you've taken some of this first fruit and you're going to give it to God somehow is, is the short version of what's going on in the intervening time. Sounds like giving something up for Lent, right? You take some of the blessings that God has given you, you voluntarily forego that and dedicate that to God, right? Important spiritual discipline, but you drop down. Then you, together with the Levites and the aliens, now, um, this isn't like E.T., right? <laughs> Not that kind of alien. Uh, this just means... Uh, <laughs> Margaret, now you're the one who's being contrary. <laughs> But these, we're talking about immigrants, right? Strangers in the land, folks who are there uh, but are not themselves Jewish. So it's always, whenever you see that in, in your readings in the Old Testament, think about this is, this is the guidance that's being given to us for immigration and those who are from other countries living among us. But together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given to you into your house. So you give it up just to take it and have a party with it, right? Which is a little bit different of a feel than we usually get for Lent. We've kind of been conditioned in Western Christianity that the idea of giving something up for Lent is a difficult thing, perhaps an unpleasant thing if you're doing it right. There's this idea of repentance and penitence that goes into it. You're supposed to search all the different ways, search out all the different ways that you fail in your, your Christian and spiritual life. But if we look at, you know, some of the stuff that went on in ancient Israel and how they understood the giving things up to the Lord, a lot of the time they give it up just then to set it aside and have a party with it and to celebrate with it. So it's not so much, you know, Mardi Gras, then Ash Wednesday. It's a little bit Ash Wednesday, then Mardi Gras. Right? You flip the order. 
because it's all God's blessings. And what you're trying to do with this idea of setting some of it aside is to recognize it as blessing and enjoy it as blessing. It's not just trying to scratch out a living. It's God being generous to you. So take a moment and enjoy that generosity and celebrate it. Throw a party. Why not? So that was the first thing that, that jumped out at me in, in this passage. Any thoughts about that or other things in here? I think it's significant that Jim mentioned the aliens. Mm-hmm. The testimony. Yep. It's a way uh, that they can show the people who aren't followers of Jehovah that there's joy in following him mm-hmm. and, and perhaps influence them into becoming followers of Jehovah. Yep. We can. And the idea that God's blessings are never just for a certain set of people, right? All the way back to the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. God is going to bless this family so that they can bless others, right? It's always this overflowing bounty of blessing. And I've always taken an opposite approach to that and not giving something up, but giving more mm. of something. Mm-hmm donating more to some organizations or stuff like that. We're taking that opposite approach. we got a bunch of contrarians in here today. I didn't even think I wanted to get this. Well, there's definitely a trend in Lent now for not just the abstinence of something, but the add to. You know, be it you are not a morning prayer person or you're not, you know, a uh, go out and serve kind of person that that you, I guess what I'm saying, there's an intentionality now Mm -hmm. in this time period of this 40 days of saying, how do I, how do I increase my knowledge and my awareness of God in my life? And is it through letting go or is it through adding something and doing something? Mm -hmm. I preferably prefer the like, let's think about what else I need to be doing. Right. And be it add or, you know. There's those let go of something, one thing a day, you know, let go of 40 days, fill a bag, so that by the end of 40 days, you're decluttering a little bit <laughs> in your house, and then you're like, oh, that's useful. Yep, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> go donate that stuff. Yeah. Travis, right, right in the middle, part of verse 5 there, he's talking about the wandering Armenian mm-hmm. ancestor who went down to Reminding us of where all aliens are going from. Yep. Uh, we've all immigrated. I mean, yeah. the whole of humanity has been Many, many right. times. Yep. Out, yeah. Yep. That is a great point, Dave. Appreciate that. And that middle section jumped out at me for, for some other reasons as well that kind of go along with that. If you drop down from that first mention of alien there in verse 5, you go down four lines, you see the word oppression. And this is, this is a, a kind of distinctive spin that Deuteronomy has on Israel's story. And it's one of the reasons that I really like Deuteronomy. Um, it's very much attuned to the idea that Israel was enslaved, in bondage, oppressed, and that God liberated them. And it kind of does a reinterpretation of some key pieces of Israel's tradition in light of that basic story. So, um, y'all know that the Ten Commandments are in there twice, right? Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. 
And you get some interesting comparisons if you look at them side by side. And the one that always sticks in my mind the clearest is the commandment about the Sabbath. Honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy. Does anybody know why you're, we're supposed to do that? and Why Israel was supposed to do that according to Exodus 20? It's the answer you usually get. Like if you're teaching kids Sunday school or, you know, VBS. Supposed to rest. Why? Because we were so busy upon that rest of the earth to give, to give mm-hmm. uh, honor to God and to your just connection with family. Yeah. And who are we imitating when we rest? God rested. Exactly. God rested after creation. If, if six day of work was enough for God, it should be enough for any of us, right? And in the ancient mindset, when you're, you're working for your own sustenance and survival and flourishing, right, um, the idea is you get, to, you get to work for yourself for six days. On the seventh day, your time is God's, right? That's how Exodus 20 frames it. Now, does anybody know how, how Deuteronomy 5 frames it, the Sabbath? Completely different. Yeah. Uh, I don't Nobody remembers. <laughs> it says because you were slaves. I saw that movie before. <laughs> <laughs> Said we rest because you were slaves, and God freed you from slavery. That's why. And for the same reason, everybody in your household, any slaves and servants that you've got, even the animals, everybody rests. Because you used to be slaves and you're not anymore. You should remember that. Be thankful for that. Rejoice in that. Right? Very different framing. But we see some of the same concerns here because we get this history. Wandering Aramean, Egypt became a great nation. They imposed hard labor. We were oppressed, but the Lord saw our affliction and brought us out of Egypt. Right? We're oppressed. Not anymore. Why? Because God, what should we do? Set aside part of the fruits and celebrate with them. So, a wandering Aramean went down to Egypt. We get a little bit of a history lesson, right? This is one of the things that is really unique about the Judeo-Christian way of identifying God. It's really unique. You don't see this in other traditions, other major religious traditions, and so on. The way that they identify God is by telling a story, by talking about history, something that happened. You ask them, who are you? We're the result of a wandering Aramean who went down to Egypt, etc. Right? That's where we come from. Let me tell you a story. You keep talking about this God. Who are you talking about? Right? There's tons of gods around back then as today in different ways. Anybody ever ask you, I tell my students up at, at the college this, if anybody ever asks you, do you believe in God, your first question should be, which one? <laughs> 3,900. Right, there's just a ridiculous number of them, right? And, and in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the way you identify which God you're talking about is you tell a story. So the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and therefore you're not going to have any other gods but me. Right? That's what our 
Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. Our testimony is our personal story. Yep. And so we're getting the collective story here. Our story, individual stories fit in within that. God has a story that we're a part of as well. And it's this story of oppression and liberation that God makes happen for us. But it's that historical identification of God that is so important in our tradition. Other thoughts on Deuteronomy? Otherwise, we'll keep going. We've got three other passages to <laughs> get to. Well, this is... Uh, I, I go ahead, Margaret. I interject one other thing. It yep. says, in verse 8, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched mm-hmm. arm and with a dis- terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. Yep. That God is a big God. Very a big. God, yep. You know, and that um, cares intimately about us individually, collectively, and all that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. There's that old VBS song, Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that God cannot do. And that actually feeds right into the psalm pretty darn well, right? Because the psalm is all about the great stuff that God is going to do to protect you and to sustain you. There's a lot going on in this psalm. Can anybody uh, figure out why this psalm is matched with this gospel? Does anybody notice? Anything in the psalm that sounded familiar? Specifically, chapter, verse 11, maybe? Temptation. Jesus' is temptation, that's right. So if you look down to the gospel there in Luke, and the third paragraph, right, the temptation where the devil takes Jesus to the top of the the temple and says, jump off, God's angels will catch you. This psalm is what is being quoted there, right? So these things come from somewhere. They're they're embedded in the Jewish mind and in the Jewish memory, and they're being taken up in these gospel stories and reconfigured in interesting ways. So Jesus responds, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Anybody know where that's from? from Deuteronomy 6. Back to Deuteronomy. Right after the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 6 starts off pretty quick with the great Shema, which we also talked about in connection to the Chosen a little while ago. Uh, the great Shema is the closest thing that Judaism has to a creed. Right? You know, We have the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, these things in Christianity um, that kind of give us the basic core statement of what it is to be a Christian, right? What, how a Christian views the world, themselves, God, those kinds of things. The great Shema in Judaism is that for them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, shall have no other gods. Right? And it goes on from there. And it's a prayer that Jews to this day will pray pretty much any time they're in the synagogue. They pray it constantly, constantly. They all have the whole thing memorized. And this bit about do not put the Lord your God to the test is in there. So I find that really interesting. Like, here's a psalm. Uh, here's the Shema, right? And we're, we're finding, Jesus is finding his way, using judgment, um, charting a path through the, how these different biblical traditions are properly applied, 
right? When does one apply? When does the other apply? How do you put them into conversation with one another? And I love seeing that in the New Testament because you're getting basically a, a class on how to do what I do a lot of professionally, right? How do you interpret texts, understand how they fit together? And that's, that's what the whole New Testament is. Trying to interpret the Old Testament, take these different passages that can go in lots of different directions and chart a course through it in light of belief in Christ and how that changes perspectives. So even in the stories of Jesus, we see this interpretation, this reinterpretation of tradition underway. I always find that really, really fascinating. But speaking of other um, interesting passages with other connection, uh, with connections to other passages, what what about verse thirteen in that psalm? Did that make you think anything? Did that ring any bells? You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Maybe it's just me because I hate snakes. So these things stick in my mind, but whenever snakes show up. Especially adders. Mm-hmm. Not fun. Did you have a thought? Is 13 on here? Flip it. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know there was something in the back. Yep. Double-sided. I didn't realize that. Does anybody remember what's in Genesis 3? Genesis 1, creation story version number 1. Genesis 2, creation story version number 2. <laughs> Genesis 3, human beings come along and screw everything up. Right? It's the fall. Adam and Eve, there's fruit involved. There's also a, a serpent. And then, you know, God catches them, as God does, <laughs> and has to bring some punishment to bear. They each get their punishments, but then there's this kind of prophecy built in there that says that the, the descendants of the woman are going to have enmity, going to you know, butt heads with the descendants of the serpent or with the serpent, and the serpent's going to bite the heel, but the heel will crush the serpent's head. It's Genesis 3.15 if you want to look it up later on. Yep. Exactly. So this is this is another thing that the reform tradition does. Um, in the reform tradition, we have uh, we identify a great deal with Israel, and we understand our community, the Christian community, the church, as kind of an extension of Israel. Right, kind of brought in later on as another branch. There's problems with that that I'll mention in a minute. But part of it, part of what that means is there's this tendency to look into the Old Testament, into the Jewish traditions, and look for those places that seem to foreshadow what's going to happen with Christ. And so this verse in Genesis 3.15 in our tradition is called the Proto-Evangelion, the, the gospel from before. And the basic idea deep in our tradition is that the faithful among God's people always knew that this was going to happen. Always knew that something like what we see in Jesus was the end game. 
And how do we know that? Well, we can look right back here to the story of Adam and Eve, and there's this clear, metaphorical, allegorical, but very clear idea that there's going to be a fight between Satan and the descendant of the woman, right? Who will overcome Satan. And so all of this gets picked up and understood, just like Bev said, in light of Christ. And here it pops up in the psalm as well. We can see this, this uh, thinking in this uh, image working its way through the tradition and enlivening the imagination at multiple different points. Now, um, to that whole thing about the church as an extension of Israel, <clears throat> there, we, we've done that badly as a tradition a lot of times. Um, sometimes we've made it sound like the church replaces Israel. It's called replacement theology. The technical fancy word is supersessionism. Um, but the basic idea is that Israel had its shot, but they didn't believe Jesus, so we Gentile Christians get to come in and replace them. Now, I think there's some real clear passages in Paul that say that this is a real bad idea. <laughs> it's also uh, a bit presumptuous and goes against some, all the various promises that God gave to Israel. So um, these days in our tradition, we recognize that that's not the best way to talk about this that God's promises to Israel remain in effect, but God also has now made promises and opportunities for us as non-Jewish followers of God, non-Jewish members of God's family, to be included in that without feeling like we need to elbow people out of the way, right? God's graciousness is big enough to encompass everybody, <laughs> not just a very small set. So that's important to keep in mind. It's important to be aware that that's also kind of in our DNA as a tradition so that we can you know, keep an eye out for it when it pops up. Um, so the idea that, for instance, with this Proto-Evangelion, there were a few Jews who got it right along the way and agreed with us. Right? We can see how that kind of lends itself toward the replacement view. But it's another thing to say, well, look at all of this, this stuff in the tradition that suggests it could play out this way. There's other stuff suggesting it could play out in very different ways. right? And that's the ongoing interpretive discussion between non-Christian Jews today and Christians, right? Lots of fruitful conversation going on and has been for decades. Uh, but we've got to get away from this idea that somehow we replace people in God's plan. Good thing things change. Yeah. How many people remember 60 years ago we were taught the Jews killed Jesus Christ? In our churches we were taught mm -hmm. that. I remember it clearly. Yep. And, and, and then somewhere along the line, it was, no, it was the Romans who did that. The Jewish presented him, but the Romans did it. But yep. That's not the way I remember growing up. Yeah. I'm glad things changed. Yeah, and um, it's all Matthew's fault. Uh, if, you, if you look at the New Testament, the kind of language that Matthew uses, um, Matthew very much blames the Jewish religious authorities. And, and even in the first couple hundred years, by the 300s, you've got kind of rampant anti-Semitism among um, Christians. And there'd, there'd be riots in different cities around Easter because the sermon got folks all worked up and they'd go, you know, riot through the Jewish quarter of the town and destroy things and beat people up and stuff like that. So, I mean, it didn't take very long <laughs> until we started behaving very badly. Um, 
so Matthew uses a bunch of this, this unfortunate language. The thing that, to keep in mind with reference to Matthew is Matthew's Jewish. Right? The, and the book of Matthew is probably the most Jewish of all the Gospels in, term of its, in terms of its frame of mind, the way that it draws on the Jewish tradition. It's very traditional in that regard. Um, Jesus is depicted as a new Moses. That's the primary interpretive lens that Matthew brings to Jesus in his Gospel. Um, and so anything that he's saying about the Jews, it's one Jew angry at other Jews, right? And they're, they're having an inter-family argument. But then as Christianity shifted so that it's no longer this group of Jews who are following Jesus, but a bunch of non-Jews who are involved, right? The rhetoric hits different and can have all kinds of unintended consequences. So it's important to remember where this stuff came from. And of course, which is the first gospel in the way the New Testament is put together? Matthew. So you turn to the New Testament and start reading, that's the version you get. And until um, the modern period, the prevailing idea was that Matthew was the first one written. No. So the idea was Matthew was written first, then Mark came along and gave you a Cliff Notes version of Matthew, right? Cut it down. Just the important stuff. And then Luke gives you a different spin. And then John's off doing something completely, completely different. But now, the prevailing consensus for decades by a vast majority of scholars is Mark is actually first. Matthew and Luke then come along. They're riffing off each other. They're riffing off Mark. They're bringing some of their own stuff in. And then John's still off doing his own thing. Right? He's, he's contrarian. So that gives us a different, little bit different perspective. We recognize that Matthew's got a unique spin. It's not, he's not the baseline <laughs> for, for how the Gospels came together. Let me tell a quick short story. That's a, Do it. I had an elderly client, Jewish, loved working with Jewish families. They were the most cohesive of everybody. Uh, so she lived in a Jewish retirement center. Um, she was a Christian Jew. Mm-hmm. Boy, was she ostracized mm-hmm. in that Jewish population, you know, home of several hundred. And whenever she would walk down the hallway or across the lobby, lips were shut. A word was said. Too bad. Yeah. Anti-Semitism still goes on. Mm-hmm. It does. An anti-Christian. People don't need a lot of a, re- a lot of reason to uh, treat other people badly, right? One of the one of the sad things about what it means to be human, unfortunately, we can do better. Verse fourteen in the Psalm: Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. We've all heard language about the name of the Lord, right? I think we get it again. Yep, we, at the very end of the Romans passage, if you look down a little bit at the very end of it, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? The name, the name, the name, the name, the name. This goes back to that point about there being lots of gods. And the way that you showed your devotion um, in the ancient world to a particular god is you called on their name specifically because you had to make clear to the gods which god you were talking to which God you were talking about. So knowing a God's name 
is very, very, very important. If you didn't know the God's name, you were pretty much out of luck. That God wasn't going to help you because it was using the name that got their attention. So that's why it's always calling upon the name, right? Those who know the name. And you get this interesting passage, and I forgot to look up where it is, but maybe you all remember it, where Jesus is teaching folks how to pray. I think it's the Luke version of the Sermon on the Mount is where it shows up. But Jesus says, when you pray, don't use a bunch of words like these other folks do, right? Get straight into the point. Um, and, if, and you notice, if you, if you think about the Lord's Prayer, God's name isn't in it starts off our father but you don't have to use God's name to get God's attention anymore because God's your father God's already paying attention but that's what Jesus is talking about when he's saying using a lot of words people would just pepper the name or the name of, uh, of Israel's God the name of any God that they were praying to throughout the conversation how many of you have heard somebody pray these days and it just is riddled with commas. That's the way I think about it. A prayer riddled with commas. God, we just, Jesus, we would just want to, Lord, let us, blah, 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 right? Just over and over, repetitively. Every few seconds a phrase, and then you get a comma because they're throwing the name in there again. Right. And I mean, he prayed about everything that he disagreed with. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Take a note for those of us who serve as liturgists. When but I it's. Pray, it, I always say, God, it's me again. Every day. It's me again. Yep. So throwing the name in there and this kind of repetitive praying, prayer with a lot of commas, is exactly what Jesus was saying to stop, (laughs) which I think is great. But it all goes back to that name. And so um, I wanted to make sure I shared with you all about the name. So if you go back to Deuteronomy, see where Lord is printed all in caps, all capital letters. Do we all know the background of that? Some int- there's some interesting textual background, but basically, because you know we're dealing with translations, there's Hebrew hiding behind the English, and there's actually Greek in between. Greek really hiding in there. But um, whenever you see Lord in all capital letters, that's the divine name. That's God's proper name. You used to think it was pronounced Jehovah. Now the, the Hebrew scholars are saying it's Yahweh. We'll see where we end up. But that's the divine name. Those four letters. What is it? Y-H-W-H? I can't remember for sure. It's terrible. My Hebrew has just left my mind. Um, but that's the divine name. So anytime you're reading where you see that, that's what it is. And the reason that they print it as Lord like this is because in the Jewish tradition, you don't use that name unless you are real careful. And it goes back to the Ten Commandments again, where you're supposed to not take... God's name in vain, which doesn't just mean cussing, as we can kind of think about it today, but in using that name in any way that isn't absolutely 100% serious and devout, right? 
don't use it in any other way. So what do they do? They just don't use it. They don't use it if they can help it. And there's all these traditions, like, um, <laughs> there's some fun, very early stories about Jesus from the Jewish side. Because at that time, there were all these traditions built up about the name having magical power. And there's a, the, the writing of the name. If you can get a copy of scripture with the name in it, that will have magical properties. And there was one explanation for how Jesus was able to perform miracles, saying he broke into the temple, he cut out a piece of the, the parchment with the name on it, slid open his leg, stuck it in there so he could sneak out with it, and this is how he got his magical powers. Right? All kinds of great stories, right? But it's all focused around this name. Now what happened was, because they wouldn't say it, like even if they write it, and this is still true for very devout forms of and traditional forms of Judaism today. Even if they write it, they have purification that has to be done for the pen. So, very serious. They, what they definitely don't want to have happen is have somebody reading along the scripture in their synagogue service and say it accidentally because they're not thinking. So, um, vowels in Hebrew are weird. They're not written. They're not letters. Only the consonants are written as letters. The vowels, traditionally, when it was still a living language spoken in the ancient form, they were just understood. It's kind of like if, you, if, if we wrote um, thing on the wall without the I, we'd probably be able to figure it out, right? Especially in context, in the middle of a sentence. We'd be able to figure it out. So they weren't written. But later on, as it was no longer being spoken in the same form, they started needing some reminders about what vowels go where. And they started putting little dots and dashes underneath the letters, underneath the consonants. It's called vowel points, vowel pointing, because they're just dots, like points. And that's how you would tell what vowels were in there. Well, what they did for the divine name is they took the word Adonai, which is in Hebrew, something like sir, right? Just a general, nondescript, respectful, honorific, right? You call somebody sir. They took those vowels and put those under the name so that anybody reading along would like be jarred into paying attention. And instead of reading the name, they say Adonai. So if you're in a synagogue service ever and you're reading along, they will say Adonai when they see that there instead of the name. And so that's taken and shows up in our textual tradition as this capital letter Lord. You don't, put the, don't actually put the name in, but you know whenever you see capital letter Lord, that's the divine name. So you call upon the name. That's also why a lot of times God is not capitalized there, because that's not the divine name. Sometimes. Many times I don't see God as capitalized when I think it should be. Mm-hmm. That will often be the case, yeah. Because there's lots of different terms that the Old Testament uses for God, right? There's Elohim, um, but that's equivalent to English God, right? In English, God can mean tons of things. Same thing with Elohim. And there's a lot of other specific uh, names like um, Sabaoth, which is uh, commander of hosts, things like that, right, that get applied. But it's just that one that's God's proper name that counts, right? 
So that's kind of what goes on behind that. And so when you see there in Romans, and this will be the last point I make before we all go uh, worship together. Second line, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. Now imagine you're a Jew that Paul is writing this to. Jesus is Lord. Now in Greek, Kyrios, Lord, is just like Adonai. It's an honorific. It's sir, something like that. But in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that all Greek-speaking Jews were using at the time, Kurios is doing the same work in Greek that Adonai did in Hebrew. So a Jew hearing this hears the name. The claim that Jesus is Lord is the claim that Jesus is somehow the divine name. And that's a radical claim. And it's the claim that's at the core, the absolute hard core of everything else in the Christian tradition. The idea that this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is also the God and Father of Jesus Christ and somehow is Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the McCracken Cast. I am and hopefully will remain Dr. Travis McMacken. I do all the production work myself, in case you couldn't tell, but the music is by my son, Connor. Until next time, think interesting thoughts.